How long does it take to tackle a home project? With Angie, you could cross it off your list before this ad is over. Just tell us what you need, indoor or outdoor, repair or redesign, and they handle the rest, sending a top pro to get it done. You don't have to lift a finger. Well, maybe except to tap the screen or click the mouse. Plus, Angie is free to use. So bring them your next home product and they will bring it home. Download the app or go to Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com to get started. Why wait any longer for a change of scene? Why wait one more week for a world-class cocktail in a rooftop hot tub? Why wait another day for Art Deco elegance and live jazz? For a spa resort with a therapy menu as long as your arm. For dinner at a Michelin Guide recommended restaurant. Why put your next short break on the long finger when it's just a small step to a giant adventure in Northern Ireland? And you can book it now at discovernorthernireland.com. Travel advice and guidelines apply. Visit nidirect.gov.uk and check ahead with providers. You are now tuned in to Hollywood Ways with Doug and Breezy. Oh, hey Ted. I know that you like the lies, know you like the way it shines. There's no other place you'd rather be. This is how we do it in Hollywood. Hollywood this is how we do it in Hollywood. All right, welcome to Hollywood Ways. I am alone in the booth again, although I have Ted Foxman and I have my new shelter dog, Boo. Boo. Anyway, I rescued a German Shepherd yesterday from the shelter, and uh, anyone who can afford one should do it. And anyone who knows me, uh, Entourage, I had the Bill Fickner character, which, you know, he loved German Shepherds, which comes from me and uh, brings me to uh, uh, the show I watched last night. Ted Foxman told me to watch this Afterlife, which, listen, I, I know what a genius Ricky Gervais is. I don't know why I didn't watch it or know about it, but Ted told me to watch it a couple of days ago, and um, I watched the whole first season last night, and, you know, it's amazing. Everyone should watch it. You know, it's... um. I mean, he's not playing himself, but it's got some essence of Curb and myself, by the way. A lot of people tell me I'm like uh, a young Larry David, not my talent, just my anger and my grumpiness. But uh, but Ricky Gervais is another one who's just like one of my favorites. And everybody should check that out. So stop with us. Let's talk about what's going on here, because uh, when I started this podcast, I had a bigger vision that this was going to morph into a show and it was going to start being this whole thing. And I actually, uh, my first day, I, I wanted to put Breezy with Scott Kahn because I wanted to write something for them. I wasn't sure what it was and I didn't know, but uh, I started writing and and Breezy may be a part of this show that we're shooting. I, I don't know yet because she's very busy and I don't even know if she's available. But um, where this all started is so everyone can go from the get go. You know, everybody, I've been watching the success of Victory, the podcast, which I think we're almost at 11 million downloads now and, uh, you know, selling out a couple of shows here and there around the country, which is pretty wild. And I just decided that I would I would put up my own money to make something with Kevin Dillon and Kevin Connolly, because I just thought uh, between the three of us, we had enough to say and enough to do um, that we could make that happen. And then I told my friend Ted Foxman, who weirdly enough is somehow uh, gotten involved with everything that I'm doing. And now we're kind of partnering up on what we're doing. But Ted is who introduced me to Breezy. And I told Ted this idea, which wasn't even an idea. And uh, it was just me, Kevin and Kevin. And and Ted said he's in. And I don't think Ted's a guy that throws his money around loosely. So he saw something that he thought was exciting in that. And and that was really the beginning of this thing. And then, um, you know, Charlie Sheen was on the podcast about a year ago. 
And we talked about maybe doing something together, but he was working on some things that he wasn't sure where they were going. Um, so I revisited it with him once I decided we were making something and he said, I'm in. So uh, changed the script, started bringing Charlie into it. Uh, Charlie brought his dad, Martin, uh, one of the great actors of all time. Um, so we have the four of them. And then we really started rounding out this script. I brought uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a great writer who wrote John Wick 3 and wrote uh, ran the Bernie Mac show. He's probably going to be a guest next week on the show. Um, and we have just taken the script to a whole other level. And we have Jamie Lynn Siegler. We have a character that that may or may not be breezy. Again, it depends on what her availability is. And today, what I thought we'd talk about, because Ted... Ted's got an interesting story in that he built a very success, uh, successful tech business. Is that a proper uh, term? It was a, definitely a tech business. Semiconductor test equipment. Se- semiconductor business in Chicago. And I think, Ted, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll start asking you questions because I guess you're going to be the guest and producer today because that's where it is. But <laughs> you, you sold your business in what, 2007? 2008, about five days before the crash. Before the crash. So uh, did those people get screwed that they bought it or no? How are they doing now? Uh, They had to borrow a few hundred million dollars at like 24% interest. So that was a pretty bad day for them. But is that true? I tell you, they it is true because Goldman Sachs was their banker and they um, they backed out when the market collapsed. Mm -hmm. But uh, in one of my finer moments of throwing money loosely around, I uh, traded my stock options that were at $1.70 on that recession day. Uh, I traded them at around $10 a share. So I thought I was a genius making about nine times my money. And I checked last week and the stock was at 170. So uh, I gave away a hundred times. So this company, this company that you started. No, no, technically my father was the, the, the genius engineer behind the, the product and he started it. And then we became partners, uh, to 2000. So, but it's worth the company now, which I'm sure they were terrified in 2008 that it was going to go bankrupt because of the market conditions. They're now worth that company. That company was worth, I think, $2 billion on the day they bought us. Wow. Today they're worth 24 billion. <laughs> All right. So Ted's not that smart, but anyway, he's investing in me. So hopefully he's yeah, there. there you go. If that <laughs> but so, anything. so I think, tell me if I'm saying this right. And it's interesting that, um, that our connection now we're talking business, which I, I haven't been much of a business guy, but, uh, an old close friend of mine, Andrew left, who was at the center of the GameStop stuff that everybody knows about. He was the main short seller that people started going out. He's a brilliant guy. And uh, one of the, one of the biggest short sellers in the country. Um, I was at his house when you were looking to move to Los Angeles and you actually looked at his house. And we, I think what I think is our shared love of comedy and movies and television was probably a big part of what hit it off for us. And um I can't think of any other reason why we're <laughs> What was the plan? I mean, you said to your wife, you have four kids. They're one of the hardest things if anyone has kids is to move your children. And unless you're moving for an absolute like opportunity, which I don't think this necessarily was. I think you were moving with the thought that you could make some opportunities. But what was the real plan behind your move to Los Angeles in 2000 and we finally moved here in 2016. I sold the business in 2008. Uh, but in 2009, I bought a house out here. It was beautiful. It was in Bel Air. I was going to move my 
my family and we were going to live a great life and I was going to get into the uh, entertainment business. In what that, way? That guy, that got kiboshed. Uh, my wife and I had a, a six month old at the time I sold my business and she was like, I can't leave. And, and he was our fourth. So um, can't leave Chicago with all my family. So my, my Hollywood dreams sort of died on the vine that day. And what uh, were, what were really the dreams? I love stories and I love the impact that those can have on you and whether they're true stories that you've never heard of that can really make an impact on your understanding of the world you live in or or stories about the human experience that really make you think about other people's lives your own life how that all meshes together and I just think that the most you know with the exception obviously of my parents upbringing which I think was a good one uh movies and television were the biggest single influence on my entire development as a human being and I know how important that was for me. And so I wanted to be part of that process for others, if given the chance. And, and so what was the dream? When I moved here, I legitimately had no idea what I was doing. I only knew one person, which was my ex-wife now, but my wife to be then. I didn't know a single person. I didn't know what I really wanted to do. I didn't have any actual skills in the film business because I hadn't done anything. But I started doing stand-up comedy and then started writing scripts, which I didn't honestly have any idea how to do that either. I started buying books. Like if anyone watches the um, <laughs> Nicolas Cage adaptation, you will yeah. learn a tremendous amount of realistic look at what a writer goes through. And that's yeah. a somewhat successful writer. But Robert McKee's book story that every writer's read, Save the Cat, is another one that's very good. And uh, William Goldman has a book called Adventures in the Street Trade, Green Trade, which was really a great book as well that I read. But I, I didn't know where to go or what my plan was. I just knew I wanted to make movies and I wanted to figure out how I can contribute. So did you have a thought of, I'd like to do X? The answer to that is absolutely I did have a thought. Um, and to be very frank with you, it became clear very quickly to me within the first year to 18 months of, of moving out here that everybody expects somebody who's going to learn the business to be younger. So here I am. I'm in now I'm 47 years old. I was still in my mid 40s, basically, when I moved here. And uh, I was not the kind of personality or, or background that people thought was going to work in the mailroom and work their way up. And so for me, the experience was most people saw me as the check um, and that that was the value that I would be bringing to any, any endeavor that was going to be happening. And for me, that wasn't really what I wanted to do. Now, obviously, you and I are now working on this project together, and I'm happy to put in money. But the reason why I'm getting involved is because you, which I feel very fortunate, and, I, and my guess is I'll, I'll probably never be able to repay you for this opportunity, is that... Um, you're giving me a voice. You're giving me an opportunity to express my creativity. You're giving me a chance to, to express my, my opinions in, on subjects. And even though you're a very, you know, if, if you were trying to get into the semiconductor business, I doubt very highly you would have a clue on how to do that. And you would probably defer to me on everything. Um, and the reality is, is that you're allowing me to, to have a voice, even though you're the equivalent of me in, in the, in the television business. So um, and it's interesting. The reason why I'm getting involved with this is, isn't because I haven't been offered things. I've been offered lots of things. And I'm actually, I've been involved in a few things that, that have gone actually fairly well uh, on the entertainment side, but they don't offer me what I really want, which is to have a creative expression. And I think, you know, so people can understand this so that you understand that when I bring someone into work with me, 
it's not just for the check because I was going to write the full check for this myself. I'm thrilled that I'm not going to, to be honest with you, because it does, it, it does add a lot more pressure on you when you do that. And I want to be focused on making this as great as possible, which obviously I'd be doing if it was my money, but you want me not waking up and, 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 and sweating that. And, and I, I'm grateful for that, but I think our natural synergy has really come from years of knowing each other, from understanding our similar tastes and things to uh, um, appreciating how much you appreciate my work. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But the point is, is that I think a lot of people, when they get into this business, they find, and this is what it is. There are so many roadblocks up and a lot of people that do what I do are not the type of people who are accessible to other voices and everyone. And we're going to get into it more with the actors that we're working with. Now, everyone who's ever worked with me over the last 30 years knows that I'm a, the best idea wins. Now, obviously I have to make the final decision. Otherwise you'll just sit there forever. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether uh Rasa who cuts my hair when she's on set and does everybody else's has a great idea. And that's happened or the grip, or the DP, or the editor, whoever has the great idea is, is what's going to win. And, you know, when I started talking to Ted more creatively, because we've been very close friends for a while, but when I said I want to find this voice for the podcast, Ted, which is a little bizarre, who's, you know, kind of an older uh, man who didn't come from Hollywood, he said, I have the perfect woman for you. And I said, who? And he told me about Breezy, which I just thought was bizarre that they were even friends because I don't see where their circles cross. But even though Breezy may not work out on this podcast because she's so busy from the minute I met her, it was like, oh, my God, this is one of those people. Like when I first met David Schwimmer or when I first met Kevin Connolly or Jeremy Piven, I just knew I had someone special. So how did that come about? So it came out pretty organically. Uh, you you know that uh, one of the things that I like to do is I really like to invest in young people. Um, and one of my missions in life is to try to help balance the inequalities that exist in this country. And so one of my endeavors has been with a young um, black entrepreneur from Philadelphia, uh, helping him develop a company called Happy Ice. Uh, and Breezy's from Philadelphia, and she happened to be at the store one day when I was there. Um, I'm I'm rarely down at the store at this point anymore because um, the business has been going for three or four years now. But um, early Happy on, Ice, was, just, just so everyone knows, Happy Ice is this amazing water ice, which I, I always associate with the East Coast in New York. But this is Philly, and it's a fantastic place that even when Melrose is absolutely terrifying to go near, there's a line at this place every time I go there. So, yeah. um, so it's been really good. And you found this entrepreneur who basically put this business together with no training, no schooling, and, and really are, he was already making something of it, but now you've kind of helped take it to the next level. Yeah. And so she, um, she knew my partner uh, somehow. I don't even remember how, but they were both from Philly. So I think they had a couple of common connections and she was down at the store one day and I did not know who she was um, at the time. I had not, uh, um, if I had watched all American, I'd probably only seen, uh, half of an episode that with my kids at some point, and it just didn't. It, I don't even know if she was in the episode. Um, and so when we met, it was really just an authentic uh, meeting. It wasn't, and nobody had an agenda. She didn't know who I was. I didn't know who she was. We just hit it off, and just like anything in life, you you kind of have a soul connection with people, whether they they come from the same background or the same culture, whatever it is. 
you know, your humanity is what unites you. And so um, we hit it off right away and we just stayed in touch. And then COVID hit. And so you didn't see anybody. There was no reason to even be in contact with people. And um, for some reason, I had reached out to her just to say, hey, how are you doing? How are you getting through all this? And I think that 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 made an impression on her that I had not only reached out, but that I had remembered our, our meeting and we stayed in touch. We got to know each other better. Um, she's a wonderful person. And uh, and I thought she was exactly who you were describing when you said, OK, this is the voice I want to try and match myself with when I go and do this. And so she came to mind immediately. Yeah. Um, and from the first time I met her, I was just like, I, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to write something for her, which is, you know, you did say that. That's always exciting when you when you find uh, a unique voice. And I can't really explain that for actors out there, because there's a lot of actors out there who will listen to Breezy's story, who was cutting hair. Someone sees her and puts her on Empire. Empire ends and they put her on All-American. But there are some people and believe me, I'm not one of them. I, I wasn't discovered in a barber shop. I uh, busted my ass. I handed out scripts to people who told me I couldn't write and maybe they were right. But I think that there are some people who just have it and um, she's one of them. It'll be interesting to see how far she can take that, but it's great. So, you know, what often happens with me is I start formulating stories with my life. And usually as the business has gone for the few years, I just put it away because I don't really write. But when the pandemic started, which I've discussed a little, uh, I finally had gotten motivated. My friend Darren from London was uh, he represented Thierry Henry, the, the, the great footballer. And he'd been asking me to write this show for almost 10 years. And I finally said, you know what? The second the pandemic started, you know what? I haven't written a script in like a year and a half. I'm just going to sit down. And I blasted it out in a couple of weeks. About two weeks later, uh, Matthew Vaughn, great world-renowned filmmaker who made the, um, you know, the Kingsman and Layer Cake, he read it and decided he was going to finance it. And we were going. We were in casting. And then the world really did shut down. I mean, uh, everything kind of closed off and, and, and there was no going to London. And it's not that that show is dead, but who knows now what will happen. I mean, I haven't even gone to London. We had casting sessions and writers rooms over zoom and it was just, it was very bizarre and it wasn't really how I wanted to do it. But while that was happening, we started the podcast, which, you know, really got me uh, really excited to start finding things that I could do on my own, finding ways to make product without having to go pitch to everybody and find all of the, the stuff and doing it inexpensively, which, you know, the first things I did in my career were inexpensive movies that I could sell. And I was fortunate enough that I did, but those old models of Quentin Tarantino and, and Darren Aronofsky and, and all of those guys who were able to make, you know, things that were inexpensive that could really showcase what they wanted to do. And, and that's where we started with this. And I think what's interesting is, is Ted, you really were, I mean, I don't know that you were, you wrote the check yet at that time, but you were really in, on just the idea of me, Dylan, and Connolly, that that I could come up with something again. I don't really want to talk about the plot or what this show is yet, but it it has elements of those entourage themes, which is that old school friendship, loyalty, and family, which I think, you know, I've met a lot of your old friends, and 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 those are the influences on me, which are my best friends since kindergarten. And I think you sort of have those similar things from Chicago, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you have a much more extensive network of of old sort of original friends that you literally grew up with, uh, you know, from the time you were probably four or five years old, you know, starting school. Uh, I actually moved when I was in high school. So that kind of really disrupted, you know, my 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 friendship ability. And unlike today, when I moved in the late 80s, uh, you didn't keep in touch by simply sending a text or um you know, if you move 20 minutes away from your friends, you might as well have been on on another continent. And the other thing is that from my own upbringing, I, you know, I was always a very roll with it kind of a guy. So, you know, let's see what adventure you get into next. And the reason why we came out to California eventually was actually not because of my desire, but because of theirs. So my four children and my wife, all we were all here in California, which we we did multiple times a year. And heading back to the airport, they all looked at me and said, hey, we want to move out here now. Um, and I looked in the rearview mirror and I was like, yeah, you saw me. snow <laughs> crime and you didn't know you were heading to crime here, though. But at least no, you don't have the snow. But so. uh, we live in a very safe area in Chicago. But uh, Chicago gets a bad rap as a city just in general for yeah. the crime perspective. But um, I just felt like they would be able to roll with it. And, you know, I come, you know, probably like you, you have a story like my mom's side of the family were were uh, were European Jews. They had to escape the Nazis and they were fortunate enough to be the only people that survived in their family. They came to this country with 25 bucks, two kids, and there wasn't a CVS or a McDonald's on every corner where you could figure out what you were doing. You really were entering in a, a world that that was frightening and new and you didn't speak the language and there was no Google Translate or anything like that. So with everything that's available today, I don't really look as cha- at change as a big, frightening thing. I've always, I've always come out on top when something changed. I've always felt like life got better. And so for me, and maybe it's a, actually a fault, I probably take more risks in my life because I'm, I'm just not afraid of the change. I'm not afraid of the change of, of, of the winning. I'm not afraid of the change of the losing. And if things were to actually go backwards, uh, you know, I didn't start with anything much in life. So the notion of, well... You know, do you live in a nice home? Yeah, but you don't need that. Uh, you know, you need to be in a place where people love you, you feel supported, and you feel like you have an opportunity. That's what you need in life. And I also think what's what's interesting about us coming together for this project, because, you know, I, I've definitely uh, settled in for the last four or five years to being pretty content that I have enough money. I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, flying around in my own plane, and I never will be. But I've kind of become content to play my pickleball, to chill out and and do stuff. But at the end of the day, as I hit 50, I started really realizing that, wow, this this is uh, there's not that much left. And if you want to leave your imprint again, which is what I want to do and and really leave something that my children can be proud of. And and also, I think you and I had that conversation of feeling purpose in life, which when you get to that place where you kind of wake up and you're not really sure what your purpose is. And, and, and I am damn good at pickleball, as you know, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the, yeah, you want to find sure. and you want to maximize whatever your potentials are. And I think um, that was part of what was going on with you. Yeah. I mean, I, part of the reason why I think, I think this works. I mean, you and I haven't had the explicit conversation, but I spend a lot of time looking at it and observing it. You know, when you look at the people that we have involved and everybody who's coming together, this is all a bunch of very talented, smart, capable people. But over the last few years, we've been trying to reinvent ourselves or find the next chapter and figure out what's what's going to happen and how we how we make that impact. And the reality is, is that people who have what we have to say, people who've seen what we've seen, 
the younger generation and and people at our own age, you know, we're entertaining uh, that that group, but we're also informing them. Um, and we might look at it like, ah, oh, people know what we know. The reality is they don't. They haven't had those experiences. And and putting those away and just spending our time kind of killing time, whether it's pickleball or golf or tennis or whatever we're going to do, that's fun and that's entertaining for us, but it doesn't really enrich the lives of others. And I think with what we have, especially going into this project, I think we have that opportunity and we have a chance for us to not only uh, employ a lot of people through this uh, as people are hurting for jobs and, and doing things, but but also make make a difference. And I know I'm with you you know, quite often, people come up to you, people recognize you, people DM you on Instagram because of the impact that your work uh, had. And to be honest with you, that's the thing that I'm sort of most craving. Um, I'm, I'm most, I wouldn't say envious because I, I'm not jealous about it, but, but I, I feel how lucky you are to be recognized for the work and the impact that that does. When you, when you run a tech company, uh, you know, honestly, unless it's Uber or figuring out somebody's uh, healthcare problems, getting the chips to work in your, in your airbag are, are, is helpful, but nobody, nobody comes up to you on the street and says, Hey, thanks so much for making that happen. So yeah. it's well, nice I mean, to feel recognized for the work and the contribution you're making to, to the people in the lives it, around it, you. It does make you feel good. But what I love so much is, and again, watching afterlife um, last night and then thinking about my German shepherd who's asleep over here, this baby who, you know, I mean, it's, you know, her, her owner died and she was in her house for days before anyone found her. And um, oh, really, I didn't know that the way I'm, I'm putting this back to our creativity though, is because I, I started watching the, the stuff with Bill Fickner from Entourage, which, you know, I've always loved German shepherds and I got to put that stuff on the show, which I know actually can make an impact in the real world that you can creatively put something out there that, rescuing a shelter dog or talking about German shepherds so people can have a different view of them. And, and I mean that with, with everything, just like with equity, you can show different stories in different communities and really uh, shine the light on things that people may not have known. And when you do it in entertaining ways that are organic, it can really actually make, make a difference. And I think all of us want to make For a difference sure. and there. And there are some things we can't do. I'd love to cure cancer, but you know, if I had a million years, I wouldn't even know where to start. So I think it's important that you figure out what your, your, your talents are and do your best to maximize them. And when you waste that time away, it does, it does feel bad. And, you know, I talked about because yesterday with the greatest day of NFL football, probably in the history, two days of NFL football. But I was saying how important the Rams win was to me, even though I'm a Giants fan, because I felt like, L.A., it's just the city is under such siege right now. And I just don't mean the crime wave. I mean, whether you're on the right who believes the politicians have caused everything that's happened, or if you're on the left who's trying to make a difference and, and feeling that, that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not working or, or you're, you're, you're not trying hard enough, whatever it is. I think that the Rams are, are something that everybody could rally around in L.A., to say, you know, that's exciting that this team is back, that people was, you know, like some people say it was uh, Dallas Cowboys were America's team. But when I was growing up, the movie Heaven Can Wait and something for Joey, those were the movies and the Rams colors and Eric Dickerson and Pat Hayden and all those guys were like, you know, it was it was a dream for me. It was real like UCLA as well. It was this far off dream because, you know, something you said that's interesting, you know, 30 years ago, going to California was like a big deal. It was like it was or 40 years ago, like the idea of me moving to some strange state where, you know, no one 
it probably will never exist again, because even if you and I wanted to move to Slovakia tomorrow, we could start getting on the Internet and start meeting people and making connections and not just showing up in a town and and starting. So so anyway, the Rams win yesterday, forgetting the unbelievable uh, story and Brady actually, you know, making everyone feel like what's the point in waking up if your name is not Tom Brady, because it just seems he's destined to win every time. And the fact that he was able to come back like that and they still overcame it. I think I think it's a cool story for L.A., so I'm excited about it. But what I want to get into some of the experiences of, of the start of making this show, because again, I will say this, I am a person who does, first of all, I like to have people who I trust. I like to have their opinions and their thoughts, but a lot of this town, it, it doesn't operate like that. And you could put in any check you want, as I think, you know, because you've gotten involved in some other projects where you handed off your check and then they were like, thanks, we'll call you when the movie's done and we'll give you a premiere ticket. So I want to talk a little bit about Charlie Sheen who I was fortunate enough to meet. And we talked about doing a show a year ago, but as I said, he had these other projects going. So we kind of let that fall by the wayside and we continued to move forward with what we were doing. And then it all came back together. But Charlie liked the Rams to me, and I'm a pretty good judge of character. And I know when I meet someone who's, who's just ready to redeem, who's ready to come back, who just knows the mistakes they made, which also the world is a, I mean, I think it's a more forgiving place than it was 10 years ago. And I think it's a place that looks at people who had drug problems and mental illness. And this is not to make an excuse for any bad behavior because it isn't. And there are consequences to that. But the question is how long should those consequences last and what, how damaging should they be to someone's life? But what I wanted to talk about, because you got a firsthand look, to see the creative process and to meet someone like Charlie, who was the biggest TV star in the world, the biggest movie star in the world at one point when he was doing Hot Shots, Wall Street, etc. So tell me about, you know, how that was for you. 10 years earlier, you're in this tech world and now you're sitting at this table with just me, you, Charlie and Kevin Conley. What was that like? Well, I mean, I think you remember when we left, I I gave you this look and, and your comment was, you know, that doesn't really happen ever. And I've been doing this for 30 years. And I said, I, I don't think it happens. And I can't believe I was just a part of it. I mean, one of the things that was one of the things that was like really apparent to me was Charlie uh, is literally one of the nicest, uh, friendliest, sort of non-ego driven people. He was so generous and giving and and even at times where he was looking around the table during during the script review, you know, he even allowed me to have an opinion on on things and give input. And, and he incorporated that input. He was like, oh, that's good. So I actually I give both of you guys a ton of credit because given what you've you've both accomplished in this space for you both to be so, so open. I mean, you know, people's ego is I'm the guy who's in charge. I'm the one who's doing this. You're all here because of me. It's very common uh, for people, especially who've accomplished anything that you've accomplished on your level. And you both, you know, if somebody comes up with a funny joke, you say, that was really funny. We got to get that in somewhere. You don't say, well, I don't know if it works. You don't try to make anybody feel small at the table. And Charlie was the exact same. And I thought, I mean, for me, as a person who's been dying to be doing something in this space creatively, to have a voice in that 
that process was just, it was literally like, like there's some people I know described, you know, stepping on Yankee stadium field for the first time and saying, Oh, I finally have my, my dream. That's what it, that's what it felt like to me. Like it was really that it was really that important. And by the way, we're going to get back there because I did step on Yankee stadium field with, (laughs) with entourage, with my children and all of those elementary school friends that I had literally 50 of them and their kids were extras in a scene with Mark Teixeira who set the whole thing up and Alex Rodriguez. And that's, that's what the dream is when you can get there and you can make these magical moments happen that also people will watch and enjoy, but you're on the other side of it, enjoying that much. And that's, that's what I'm really trying to go for. And that's why, you know, Kevin Connolly is now one of my best friends for, let's see, we met in 2001. So for 20 years and Kevin Dillon, who I work with on the podcast and also know 20 years, these are, these are the close friends. And what I'm trying to do with this show with everyone that we've brought in thus far from my cinematographer, Dave Perkle, who I went to AFI with to Gary Goldman, who I did kissing a fool with in Chicago in 1995 um, to all of the crew members who were coming in to Jamie Lynn Siegler to Mark Cuban, who was so incredibly generous to us when he came on entourage and then on the podcast. Um, And I really think that it will make a big difference that we are surrounded by people because by the way, even what you're saying about how Charlie and I were interacting, there's a lot of actors who won't work like that. There's a lot of actors who have their own egos and give them the script, get the hell out of their way. And I think the difference between this and what you're going to find and and hopefully what's going to make it, you know, really resonate to other people is that we're all involved in creating this again. I don't want to like sell myself short. I think you know how much I do, but the fact is we on a zoom like this and we're not locked into the title yet, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be the title of the show. But you know, when a title hits you, you usually know there's something there and it's one of the harder parts of coming up with something, but we came up with that on a zoom like this with how many hours did we spend sending stupid words back and forth to each other? You know, Hulu has the shows and movies you love and is committed to providing a platform for black stories to continue to be seen with the Hulu Black Stories Hub. Watch Women of the Movement, produced by Sean Carter and Will Smith, and all seasons of Snowfall and Atlanta. Catch up on Queens, Grand Crew, Blackish, and Abbott Elementary. Binge RuPaul's Drag Race, Power, Queen Sugar, Tyler Perry's Have and Have Nots, Hulu Originals, Wu-Tang, and American Saga, Woke, and more. With all those plus classics like Living Single and Family Matters, docuseries like Your Attention, Please, and Black Love, and Hulu Original Movies like The United States vs. Billie Holiday, and Onyx Collective's award-winning documentary, Summer Soul, you can find stories and storytellers that highlight and celebrate black history, past and present, on Hulu's Black Stories Hub, 365 days a year. Hulu subscription required. Terms apply. I was just looking, actually, uh, the other day, Saturday. I think I have 450 title (laughs) uh, options because the feel, the vibe, the energy of the show is there. It's established. It's not something we're working on. But capturing that with a title has been really challenging. And how do you say it the right way? And how do you mark? You have to think of the business aspect of marketing it to people and what, what pulls people in, what doesn't give a critic, you know, a, a great, you know, swinging grapefruit to go, oh, yeah, I wish you wouldn't have returned, you know, right. thanks so much. Um, yeah. That, you know, that kind of thing. You and I, aside from this podcast, we're probably talking 
anywhere from six to eight hours a day right now for probably the last 18 months that we've been kind of just gelling all this. Yeah. And we've, we, how many calls have we just thrown? <laughs> Sometimes we send a text in the middle of a thread and it has nothing to do with the topic. And then you say, wait, is that a title? Suggestion? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, I it's think been really challenging. And, and, and when it hit us, it was like, wow, it was crazy, but we did that together. Like, and that's, what's been awesome about this whole experience. Yeah. And then we're going to keep, continuing to make this something that again you can never assure success no but i've never felt stronger going into something um that we have the right team the right script and the right talent behind it so now it's just keeping our heads down executing and 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 you need luck you just do there's a lot of breaks that come into making a successful show and and there are some people we know you know jj abrams can just keep doing it over and over and over and there's you know about 15 other people that can do that but most of us have to really put our heads down, work our asses off and then, and then hope for the best. And I think we're in a position to do that. But today, you know, you really saw firsthand location scout. We went around with the whole crew and you saw drove kind of the city. Yeah. Drove all over the city. You're tired from that. I mean, it seems like it's real <laughs> easy, passenger but, with you. but I think, you know, you got an inside look at the beginning process of how I'm going to block these scenes out, how I'm going to take these locations. And usually what I do, which is some directors really block the scenes before the actors ever show up, tell actors where to go. I don't do that. Now, I'm trying to come up with my strongest use of what the space is and where I think people should be. But I'm going to bring the actors there probably a week to 10 days before we shoot. First, I'm going to bring extras there and my cinematographer, and I'm going to shoot it as I would. But then I'm going to bring the actors there and see how they move and how they feel. So I don't know. what Did you get anything out of that experience today? And is there any part of yeah, you that goes, I mean, yeah. what, what you realize, and, and, and by the way, I left feeling a little bit insecure. Like, I don't know, did we do enough? Like, did we figure out enough? Because um, there's so much you realize, you know, what goes into a show. Uh, it's not just characters. It's not just their dialogue. It's what are they doing while they're doing that on screen? And it makes a big difference. Like there has to be the right movement. It's really the thing that hit me the most, I think, because this was the closest experience. I've, I've been on sets before and things like that, but this was the closest experience that I had to, okay, how are we going to do this? And it really is like choreography. Yeah. Um, it You have to choreograph every single thing so that it, you know, somebody's doing the same, the right thing at, that you would be doing in regular life, not just uttering words that, that the words can be amazing. But if, if it's out of nowhere, if, if it's not the right look, if it's not the right angle that it's being caught at, if they're not seeing the other characters' responses, it all changes the impact that that has on the story. So, yeah. well, well, the interesting thing is also what you got to see today is, you know, I, I'm a person, you know, entourage and everything I've done, I try to shoot cinematically and realistically as possible, which means I, I try to make it feel like you're a fly on the wall. You're hanging out with these people and you're in there and you're one of your, the camera is almost you and you get into a space and you have a script that's already been written that I, I would was written before I ever saw that space or ever imagined that we would shoot in that space. So now you have to try to a match up that dialogue with the space. And then again, you might have to re redo it all once the actors get there because actors will go, I don't feel comfortable moving on this line. Even though, like I said, I know Dylan and Connolly so well, I can almost feel 
where they're going to want to move and where they're going to be motivated. And Charlie, I'm getting the same vibe now too, that we just have very similar tastes and thoughts on the way things go. But um, I think um, it's going to be fascinating for you to, to watch how this goes from what you said before. Like, did we do enough today? To be honest with you, again, today we had about 12 people there. As much as I want to be all inclusive, and I was today, I need to sit with my cinematographer and I need to take a few extras that would act as the actors. And I need to have real quiet where I could just go this, 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 this. And again, once the actors come, I never like to lock anybody into anything, but it's fun. You know, it just is like you go into the house and by the way, we're shooting at your house, which uh, that'll be, you know, Wait, interesting what? for you. <laughs> yeah. Your, your family and your animals are going to all have to disappear. So the whole process, you're going to get a look, you're going to get a film school look at it. And I spoke to you about this a couple of days ago, but I don't consider myself any of these people, but I look at Scorsese and Paul Thomas Anderson and Robert Altman. And I look at the great single shots from the player, from, you know, uh, touch of evil, Orson Welles from boogie nights, Goodfellas. Um, obviously from Goodfellas, And, you know, I, I've, you know, now thought about what my, you know, it's not going to be close to that, everybody. So don't get too excited. But my one shot will be in this show. And I've already written the script to match to that. But what I was telling you yesterday, which I think is, is a funny story. When I was at the American Film Institute, you do two-day shoots. These student films, you have two days to get everything. And I decided to make the first seven to ten pages of this student film one shot. And this was a film that, this is 1992, David Schwimmer was in, my friend David Lasher, who was on Blossom at the time, I think, uh, and 90210. (laughs) All right. She's uh, she's already a big fan of 90210. Yeah. Hey, boo, come on. I planned this entire day, which everyone at that school, including my cinematographer, Dave Perkle, who's doing the new the new project, will tell you, they're like, are you crazy? You can't spend the whole day on one shot. What if you don't get it? You know, and I got it. And, you know, I felt great about it. And then I got in the editing room with my student editor. And, you know, if you shoot a one shot, meaning there's no edits in it, the only thing you have to do is pick the take. So if you shot it 14 times, you have to watch it. And if you have 14 takes that seem like they work, at some point you have to make a decision. But that should take, you know, less than an hour, as opposed to if you covered the whole thing, you could be in there for weeks trying to figure out, you know, what the cuts are in this and that. But my editor kept saying, why don't we cut this scene up? I think it's moving a little slow. And I I just, you know, I'm a I'm not a person who likes scenes to move slow. So I was like, I don't know. I feel like it really was working. And, And she kept pushing me in this direction. And I had, I had dreamt of this shot and I had planned it. And, and like, I got applause from other students. And again, my AFI, that class was Darren Aronofsky was in that. And Todd Field has been nominated for an Oscar and Scott Silver, who wrote uh, eight mile and the Joker and um, Mark Waters, who, you know, did mean girls and a million other things and, and a bunch yeah. of other really talented. Is anybody people. talented or no? I mean, really good group of people. And they clapped when I got the shot. And there I was in the editing room, like dreaming about, because I always considered myself in that group. I was like the funny guy. Hopefully they get some laughs. But these were like going to be some real world class, serious filmmakers. But I got the shot and everybody was happy. And I kept saying to my editor, why are you driving me crazy? Let me see it. And then we'll cut it. 
And she got up and I love her. So if she ever somehow heard this, she gets up and starts screaming. You never made a mistake. You never made a mistake. You never. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? about? What we shot? We shot on VHS or whatever it was tape. She deleted it. She accidentally recorded over my shot that took the entire day. And that was it. So we ultimately uh, had a, had that, was, a, that was her mistake. She was letting you know about. She was letting me know about it. And, and this film, by the way, at AFI, you know, I feel very proud of this. I was the only director at AFI out of the 24 of us that did not apply for second year. I'm not a school person. I'm not a system person. I'm just not. It's not that AFI was not amazing, but everybody else was desperate to get back in. And actually, Darren Aronofsky wasn't even invited back second year, which is crazy. I mean, but. But oh, he, um, he showed them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, I think they invite him back plenty now. They, by the way, they never invited me back. So anyway, <laughs> and, and did not put uh, did not put Entourage ever on like their top TV shows of the year, even though the New York Times did and all the Emmys. But anyway, I guess they hated me. But what happened was I decided to do a film that was mocking the school. So I actually starred in it with Schwimmer and, and Lasher and other people. And the uh, film was about a film student and it's shot on the AFI campus and he comes to the school. And just like me, what happens is you make these films and then you have to sit at the front of the class while the rest of the school um, critiques it. And you're not allowed to respond no matter what they say. You have to sit there and just take it. So I did my first film and people laughed and I felt a great ego blast. And then I got up on the stage and the, and the teacher who was this great teacher, and I love him, but his name was Deju Magyar, and he was best friends with, like, Roman Polanski, who did Chinatown and, and, you know, Rosemary's Baby, and is just one of the great directors of all time. He's not allowed in the country because of a rape charge, but that's a different story. But anyway, so (laughs) he was a very serious filmmaker, and I did this little comedy where everyone else made these really artistic movies, and as I remember it, the class was responding. Oh, my God, that was so funny. And this and that, which what the hell else do you want out of a comedy? You want to laugh. But then the conversation changed. What did this really mean? What's the meanings behind this? Is this a, a, a film worthy of, of anything? And by the end of it, I, I was like, I'm a loser. I, <laughs> I felt like crap. Oh, I felt beyond horrible. But by the end of the year, my feeling was kind of like, um, this school system is almost like a mini Hollywood system. Like they decide who their favorites are. They empower them and build them up. And everybody else is kind of on the outside. So the last film I made was this film that I was going to star in as this new film student at AFI. And exactly what happened. I got up. Um, I showed my film and um, they said, you know, uh, actually, my film was The Wizard of Oz, like in the in this student film. It was like a scene from The Wizard of Oz. And then all of a sudden, my film school teacher gets up and he's dressed as a Nazi stormtrooper. And he starts saying about The Wizard of Oz, who gives a crap about a rich girl who owns a fortune in livestock or something like that and turns it off. And everybody starts turning on me and all of the students start melding into sheep. And they all start going, bah, bah. And I go running out and the teacher goes, get them. And they all chase me through AFI campus, by the way. So they all start chasing me with, with like Frankenstein torches and shit like this. And, and I run out and I forget what the rest of the plot was. But, you know, it was, it was supposed to be a, a ha-ha moment of, of me. Satire of the yeah, process. Of, of me making the thing. But my teacher did not show up. The only time of the whole year. He didn't show up. And other students at the time were terrified. They didn't want to work on it because they thought they wouldn't get invited back to the second year. So it was like it was kind of a, of a thing. And, you know, also for young writers out there, 
to to think about this. Um, my producer at the time was a great guy named Alan Stern. And one of his best friends was a huge screenwriter at the time who I'm blanking on his name. He'd written a movie with uh, Kevin Klein called Consenting Adults. I'm 22 years old and I wrote this little satire of the American Film Institute and uh, I'm shooting it. And Alan calls me up like three days before we shooting. He goes, hey, I, uh, I just got a letter from, you know, my really successful multi-million dollar sale screenwriter who read the script. Now, this is like an 18 page script that I, I thought was like very funny and, and light. And and he wrote this scathing review of this script that, again, almost put me into you know, an institution. I said, wow, I, I don't know what to say. I, I don't see it like this at all. He thought it was embittered. He thought it was horrible. He thought it was nasty. He thought it was all these things. When I finished shooting the film, he watched it again and called me. I mean, he watched it for the first time and called me and said, I did not get the tone of this at all. I apologize. This is completely different than what I saw on the page, which is why for screenwriters, It's so important to try your best to give every ounce of your vision on that page, which is something that's always been difficult for me because I see what I want to do so clearly. Now, the same thing ended up happening on Entourage as well. And um, I won't say her name, but the agent at Endeavor who became my agent years later, I got the coverage that was written about Entourage by either United Talent Endeavor or whoever she was at the time. That said, this pilot script was so horrific and so useless that only because it was about, you know, the film industry, only if Michael Token, who wrote the player, came in and did a pass on it, is there possibly a scrap of something worth saving in this screenplay? That's what they said about Entourage. About the Entourage pilot, which was what we shot and which, you know, the the New York Times said was the best, uh, smartest show on television when we came out. My point was she also called me after she saw it and said, I just, I did not see this tone. And it's something that has dogged me throughout my career because it's often that I give people my scripts and they tell me things that they're seeing that I don't see at all. So I don't really have the answer for the writers as to. Well, now I'm, I'm a little scared, to be honest with you, about our project, because everybody seems to really love this thing. Yeah, they're, they're lying. They're all just, lying. <laughs> I wish they would just hate it like all the rest of your crap. <laughs> well, you know, my father, my father said about the Entourage pilot, I don't get it. You know, he, he had read it and he said, I just don't get it. But I guess my point is, most of all, especially if you're going to go out like we're doing and do it on your own, is you got to believe in it. That doesn't mean you don't take a bunch of people that you trust and let them really go into it, which is why I say you had agreed to put the money in with a script from four weeks ago, which is remarkably different from what it is now. Now it's still the same story. It's still the same characters. My point is though, really be true to what you believe and really focus on that while at the same time, be really willing to accept critique and commentary, which by the way, Ted Foxman, who is not a writer, who has not been in this business, I told him when I handed him the third to last draft at 10 o'clock at night after I'd worked 14 hours, I said, I want you to read this. I'm completely willing to listen to any input you have, but I don't want you to get too into the weeds about the dialogue because right now I'm just focused on making sure this story works. And I woke up the next day and Ted 
like Andrew Dice Clay did on Entourage, had sent me 14 pages of dialogue revisions. And I woke up in the morning and, and I do take it personally. And I was like, first of all, part of you, it's not that you take it personally. Part of you gets insecure. Like, wait, I said not to look at the dialogue, but now he did. Am I crazy that I don't know what I'm doing? And he knows what he's talking about. Da, 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 da. So I went through that process. But then I did in the next two days what I said I was going to do, refined it. And, and really worked on every single syllable of it. And then I think you're now, again, on board to where, to where I'm hoping. So Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been on board, even through that process. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I know that. But, you know. oddly, oddly enough, I mean, because we talk so often, the only reason why I did that was you actually said, I'm going to bed early. So I didn't have an outlet to actually capture the brainstorm <laughs> that I would have done. Right. And, and it was actually terrible because... The, the version of the script you sent me was in a format called Final Draft. I used to have Final Draft on my computer, but I don't anymore. So I couldn't even open it. So I literally had to rewrite the places just so I could actually rewrite notes because I'm not very good at, at handwritten notes. Right. Um, and well, so final, the reason why the I way, final, like that. Draft, final Draft should be 100% sponsoring this podcast. But yeah, absolutely. But, but what I'll say is, is that for the last year and a half, most of my creative outlets besides the podcast has been you and I bullshitting Absolutely. about whatever we're talking about. Yeah. But now I'm really back to the grind where I'm exhausted at night. Like normally, and, and it's sad to say, but I want people to understand this because it's what I've been going through for the last year and a half. I go to sleep at night because I'm bored and I don't want the day to continue anymore. And I'm going, what the fuck else is there to do? I can't watch anything else. I can't really go out. I, I, I'm not, I don't have anything to do tomorrow besides figure out who I'm playing pickleball with. But now my creative brain has really kicked in and we're talking the last eight to 10 weeks where I am grinding. And by the time nine o'clock rolls around, number one, I'm exhausted. Number two, I really do want to not think about this so that I have a fresh eye in the morning so I can be the best that I can be. You know, um, you know, as I said to you, when you start losing your focus, mistakes happen. And I won't say who it is, but there's a good chance, knock on wood, we're going to have an Academy Award winning actor in this thing. Who's never appeared on television, right? Who's never appeared on television, but I don't want people to start guessing. About it. But his name was spelled wrong in the script that went out to him, which is so nuts. It's, it's almost hard to believe that it actually happened, but it did. And if we get him, I'll announce who it was. If we don't get him, I'll announce who it was and I'll say, say what it was. Anyway, I just wanted to say we had a great day today. Aside from that, we are really, we're really grooving and we really have, which I want you to understand how imperative it is that we have everyone so far involved in this is a non-egotistical driven by their desire to make something good and to do it with people that they actually like and care about. So, so I'm excited about it. So, and next week I'm going to bring uh, Mark Abrams on who I wrote John Wick three and, and worked on entourage and ran the Bernie Mac show who I brought in to, uh, to help me get this script to the help all of us to get this script to the next level and uh, and that's going to be cool. So uh, we'll give you an update on next week, what's going on. And uh, we should know whether Breezy's going to be a part of the show next week because we're going to find out her schedule and, and whether that might work out or not. So we'll get into that also. But uh, I don't know. Good episode. I feel I feel strong about this one. So hopefully everyone will uh, spread the word and uh, get behind everything we're doing. So that's it. That wraps up another episode of Hollywood Ways. I'm Doug Allen. And you got my producer, Ted Foxman, here. And um Good yontif.
Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. With Angie, you could cross your next project off your to-do list before this ad is even over. Just tell them what you need and they'll handle the rest, sending a top pro to get it done. Or browse reviews, compare quotes from pros and connect instantly all for free for everything from routine maintenance to a dream remodel. Because however you want your project done, they'll get it done. Download the app or go to Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com to get started.